Let me read for us the Word of God, Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them at Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, you, <clears throat> to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Pray with me, friends. Lord, even now as we come before you, our hearts are in great need of your grace, of your mercy, of your sanctification. Help us, God, by the grace of Jesus, to know you better, to love you more, to become more faithful. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. You ever notice that In great storytelling, the author tends to place the hero of the story in a place of peril before he rises to victory. Like, how often in a movie will you see the person that you want to win in a desperate situation where it looks like everything is falling apart? And it's only then that something turns the tide, right? Only then does he... Does the hero dig down deep to fight off the bad guy? Or only then does help finally arrive? Or only then at the darkest moment that the hero notices that singular piece of information that changes the outcome? But what joy is to be found 
when the circumstance changes, it's wonderful to watch as the evil devices of the wicked are unraveled. It's, it's sweet to see the good guys standing strong, made whole in the end. So with that thought in mind, I can only do this with a nerdy reference. Otherwise, it's no fun. How many of you are, again, Lord of the Rings fans? Okay, nerds. Okay, so in Tolkien's the book, The Return of the King, there's a sweet little scene where a character, Sam, had been rescued after we were certain he was going to perish. And then he meets another old friend that he thought had already been lost. The quote goes like this. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. That's awfully sweet, isn't it? One reason that storytelling like this appeals to us is the fact that it fits reality better than you might think. If you put the story of the Bible into four major categories, you might suggest that the story is one of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And it just goes through those four things. God made a perfect world. We rebelled against God and broke the world. And in that second stage, we find ourselves feeling hopeless, condemned, helpless. Only then, in the middle of the deepest darkness, do we then see the full-fledged glory of the work of Jesus to redeem a people for God. Only then do we learn that all who come to Jesus in faith have life. Only then do we realize the true beauty that is to come in a world where Jesus Christ reigns eternally. And then we, like Sam, might ask, is everything sad going to come untrue? As we've been studying the book of Micah for three weeks now, we have seen God paint some dark pictures. Last week, we opened the second section of the book with a, with a full chapter in which God, through Micah, spoke words of judgment over his sinful people. The people of Judah had corrupt leaders who perverted justice. They had corrupt priests who ignored God's word and who sought personal financial gain. And God made it clear that those people, they were headed for destruction. Micah 3, verse 12, the last of that chapter before this one, says, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. The words in that prophecy, they are words of destruction. The great city, Jerusalem, the place that was supposed to be the dwelling place of God, will be plowed under like a field. Why? Because of the sin of the people of God. And because of their sin, their cruelty, their idolatry, their greed, their injustice, God will ruin them. Zion, the mountain of the Lord, will become wilderness. 
you got to understand that if you heard this prophecy around, oh, I don't know, 700 to 703 B.C., you might have feared that all of God's promises were going to fail. God said he would dwell with his people forever. God said he would bring a king through David's line to rule the world in justice and righteousness. God said he would bless all the nations through Abraham's offspring. God promised he would bring somebody into the world to fix what we broke with our original sin. Is God's promise dead? Has it failed? Is the story over? And thanks be to God, we know God has never failed to carry out his promises. God will not be defeated, not even by our folly. And thanks be to God, we're going to find hope for the promise of God here in Micah chapter 4. So, as we've been doing all along in this series, I want us to work through the chapter. Let's see the things that the text would have spoken at first to the people of Micah's day. And then at the end of our time together, we'll look back at it real quick to see what these words have to apply to our lives as the people of God in the 21st century. So I want you to be ready to write down three key points as we find a promise of restoration. All set? Okay. Point number one. God's kingdom will come. God's kingdom will come. Look with me, beginning at one and two. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, remember this. The last thing Micah said to his hearers before this is that Jerusalem, their capital city, the seat of their hope, would be destroyed. Micah told these people that the mountain of God would be rubble. And while some of the people might have felt the call of God to turn away from their sin at that judgment, many who heard seemed to fear that all must be lost. So what glory is there to find right here when Micah points ahead to the future? In Micah's day especially, you couldn't have said how long it would be till this future came to pass. But a time would come when what had gone wrong would be undone. A time would come when that which was sad would indeed come untrue. God promises that the mountain of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, with chapter 3 in mind, we're reading God saying that where rubble would fall, glory would arise. Where a temple would be destroyed and people might think God's promises had failed, God is going to show greater glory than any of them could have ever imagined. Now, 
Mount Zion, the part of Jerusalem where the temple stood, is not and was not a notably tall mountain. Mount Zion is around 2,400 feet above sea level. Do you guys know that? In comparison, the strip here in Vegas is about 2,000 feet above sea level. My house is 3,000 feet above sea level. If you drive up Mount Charleston to where the lodge was, it's about 8,000 feet above sea level. And Charleston Peak comes right up to the edge of 12,000 feet. But God says to his people that the mountain of the Lord will be elevated to the highest of all mountains. What's God promising his people? He certainly could be predicting a change in global geography that reshapes the entire world's landscape and makes the city of God the highest point. But I think far more importantly than wondering about that potential, God is most certainly promising his people that a day is coming when the worship of God, when the place of God's rule is going to be the single most important thing in the universe. Micah says Jerusalem is going to fall. The people fear that the reign of God as king may never come. But God says he's going to establish his kingdom as the greatest center of power on earth. Well, when God raises his place of rule to the position of prominence, peoples, nations beyond Israel are going to flow to it. The language of flowing here is the same language as a river flowing down into the sea. But in this case, the river of people flow uphill to the place of the Lord, to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the Lord, to be in the presence of the Almighty. Verse 2 adds, many nations will come. Stop and realize what God's promising right there. All through the Old Testament, our focus is inward toward Israel. If you want to know God, go get inside Israel. And that makes sense. After all, God chose that one singular nation, that one people group to carry the promise of God, to carry the promise of the Messiah to come. And the focus of the Old Testament is to keep Israel, to make Israel pure, to keep the bloodline of the promised one intact until he comes and accomplishes his mission. But connected to that promise is God's bigger promise. God will bless all nations through the one to come. God will repair the fallen world through his anointed one. And when God accomplishes what God had planned, people from every nation, from all people groups, will stream to the throne of the king. Verse 2 says that the people who come, they're going to come to the holy city in order to learn the laws and ways of God. God's throne is not going to be ultimately, finally destroyed. Neither will his holy word ever fade from this planet. Instead, all nations, not just the Jews, will run to the feet of the Lord to be taught God's ways that they might walk in obedience. This is a glorious restoration when one realizes that the judgment pronounced in chapter 3 was due partly to the priests in Jerusalem who were teaching false doctrine for financial gain. They didn't present the word of God. They lied because they wanted money. God says, I'm going to have my law go forth. Then verses 3 and 4. 
He shall judge between many peoples, bless you, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So not only is God promising there's going to be a day when he reigns as king over all of his people, not only are peoples and nations going to come to him to hear his true word, God also says, I will rule the world and I will bring peace. Chapter 3, we saw that another reason the wrath of God was going to fall on Jerusalem was because the leaders were unjust. They were oppressing the powerless to steal their property and to use the weak for selfish gain. And that sin is going to bring warring nations into Jerusalem and they're going to demolish the holy city. But now, someday in the future, God will rule with justice and with righteousness. If the Lord is judging, if the Lord is the one judging, understand this, it is impossible that justice is not done. After all, justice is the right and proper application of God's word and God's ways, God's perfect standard in all areas of life. Don't confuse justice with anything else. God is holy. God is just. God's ways are perfect. Justice is no more and no less than the proper application of the standards of God to every situation. But here, instead of foreign nations coming in and trampling over the temple grounds, God is going to rule over the nations of the world. God is going to rule. God is going to decide the disputes between the nations. You know, unlike our modern United Nations bloviating some sort of incomprehensible form of morality, the God who made us, who is just in every dealing, will make binding decisions that'll change the world. Sound good so far? What's the result going to be? Peace is what the result will be. True peace will come. The nations will beat their swords into plowshares. The money and the energy that was formerly used among the nations to forge weapons of war will be used for the good of all the people in the land. War is not going to be needed anymore because the Almighty will reign from his holy mountain. War is going to be done. Strife between nations is going to be settled by the Lord himself. And what happens when God reigns and war ends? Peace leads to provision. Verse 4 tells us that every man will sit under his own vine and his own fig tree, which I think is Hebrew for he will have a taco tree. I don't know, that, that might just be me. But the picture actually is, is one of genuine prosperity, whether you want figs or not. People are going to be able to work their own jobs and they will be able to successfully provide for their own families and there will no longer be fear. Imagine how nice it will be to not have fear anymore. No fear of abuse. No fear 
of theft. No fear of not making ends meet. All who work will eat. How sure is this future? Micah adds, For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. When you see Lord of hosts written, that's a way of speaking of God as mighty, powerful, the God above all armies. So the powerful, almighty, undefeatable God has told us exactly what he will do. Maybe he will allow Jerusalem to fall, but he's going to raise his holy city to prominence. He will draw the nations to his banner. He will rule. He will bring peace. He will grant prosperity. He will push back the effects of the curse on the ground. He will change the world. Then verse 5, For all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. All the nations out there, you know, follow their own false gods. They've got their own ideas. They've got their own faiths. But those who love the God who made them will not be swayed. We will walk in the name and in the ways of the Lord our God forever. No one will defeat our God. He will reign forever. Chapter 3 was dark. God promised judgment. But chapter 4 promises a breaking dawn. Where there was false teaching, there will be the right proclamation of the word of God. Where there was fear of being conquered, there will be God ruling. Where there was war, there will be peace. Where there was hunger, there will be provision. Where there was injustice, there will be the Lord reigning as the just king. Where the evil nations exalt their idols, there will be the rule of the one true Lord of hosts. Micah tells the people of Jerusalem, God's kingdom will come. Darkness is not the close of the story. Now let's keep going. Point number two, not only will God's kingdom come, point number two, God restores the broken. God restores the broken. Verses six and seven. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So now Micah says there's another reversal coming. Not only will there be justice where oppression reigned, not only the word of God going forth where false teaching was being practiced for money, now we see that the wounded, the weak, the afflicted will be the true people of God. God says he will assemble the lame. That is an interesting word, lame. In the Old Testament, it's very rarely used. And what it should bring to your mind is Jacob. Do you guys remember Jacob having his whole WWF wrestling match with the angel one night? And the way I read it, the angel came off the top turnbuckle and hit him right in the hip. 
Again, I, I, I have a neat imagination for these stories. I don't know how yours go. It says that the Lord touched Jacob at his hip. And remember, though, God blessed him. Jacob walked with a limp from that day forward, right? The Hebrew word for limp is the same word for lame here. Israel as a people, they were limping. They were broken. They had not lived up to their potential. They had not followed God's ways. They had not done justice. They had not experienced the abundant blessing God promised them if only they would obey. And the nation was about to be cast off, allowing God had allowed the northern kingdom to be dispersed and the southern kingdom was going to go captive to Babylon. But God says in the latter days, whenever that would be, God will gather to himself a people. And those people will not be the strongest and the mightiest. You will not be required to be the prettiest to be among these people. You don't have to be as beautiful as Ben. No. The people that God will gather and make his people are going to be the weak, the limping, the needy people who have found they cannot fight God and they cannot stand on their own without him. How many of you would say that's more you than the most beautiful of the world? How many of you limp? God is going to build a people for himself and they are going to be his protected, sacred remnant. They will never be lost. They will be strong, strengthened by God and God will be their king forever. Then verse eight. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. God looks at the city, and you see that the city that's going to fall is going to be restored. God is going to watch over his people from its heights. The remnant will have a protecting king once more. God even promises to restore the former dominion. Israel was at its greatest. Well, when were the, who was king when Israel's borders were at their best? It's King Solomon. During the reign of Solomon, Israel was expanded to its highest height. When Solomon built the temple, that's sort of the pinnacle point of the Old Testament. And everything from it for Israel was downhill from that day forward. Israel as a nation was broken as a kingdom. Ten of the twelve tribes split off from the line, and the land was constantly at risk of invasion from Edom, from Philistia, from Syria, from Assyria, from others. But God is so going to restore his kingdom that the former dominion will no longer be a long-lost dream. People will not have to long for the good old days anymore. Now, if you were the person living in Jerusalem, again, let's just pretend it's 703, 705 B.C., give or take. This has to sound pretty darn good. The poor and the broken are not going to be left out. They're going to be restored. 
God is going to keep them. God is going to bring his kingdom. God will not leave the hurting, the abused, and the broken behind. So God's kingdom is going to come. God's going to keep his people. We know this. But then third point, God will preserve his kingly promise. There's your third point. God will preserve his kingly promise. We're going to do nine and ten. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So now God gets a little more specific for the people of Micah's day. God is actually going to warn the people of Jerusalem about three big events that are going to occur over the next 170 years or so. The first pair found in these first two verses are the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Babylon and eventually the return of the exiles. So again, imagine it's 702, 703 B.C. In verse 9, God asked the people this question in Jerusalem. Why are you crying out and wailing like a woman in labor? Which is probably insensitive if you think that through. But Why are they screaming out in agony? And God asks an interesting question. Pay attention to this. This one matters. God says, is there no king in you? Verse 10 God tells the people they will, in fact, suffer. They'll be taken from their city. They're going to be forced to sleep outdoors as they travel. And they'll be brought captive to Babylon. If you want the history here, the Babylonian Empire, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, took the nobles captive in Jerusalem in the year 606 B.C., They set up a vassal government and the people of Judah were so rebellious against their new rulers that the Babylonians utterly destroyed Jerusalem and the temple that Solomon had built. They did that in 586 BC. Then the rest of the population was carried off to Babylon except for one tiny group that ran away to Egypt and dragged poor Ezekiel down there with them. At the end of verse 10, God promises that the people of God are going to be rescued from Babylon, redeemed by God's mighty hand. That takes place when Babylon falls and King Cyrus sends the people back into the land in 538 BC. Now, go back in your mind to that king question in verse 9. The question the people of Judah had to be asking as they mourned their fate was, It's going to have to do with the king. It was going to have to do with a counselor. After all, Isaiah promised them right around this time that a king would come in David's line who would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And the people seeing the captivity coming might have thought that that promise was going to fail. But God's word never fails. 
God will preserve his people. God will bring the remnant back to Jerusalem. God will rebuild. And in doing so, God will always keep the kingly promise or the line of a, of a king from the kingly line alive. Verses 11 to 13, wrapping up the chapter. Now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. That He's gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So when God told the people about the coming Babylonian captivity, God was predicting a fall that actually wasn't going to happen for a century. The return was going to be 70 years after that. But right here in verses 11 to 13, God promises a third thing to the people of Jerusalem. And it's a thing that is about to happen like right now in their world. In the year 701 BC, the Assyrian Empire led by Sennacherib marched into Judah. They destroyed the northern kingdom two decades before this. Now they're surrounding Jerusalem. Now they're threatening to wipe out the southern kingdom. And if you remember the story, Isaiah 36, 37, 2 Kings 18 and 19, God sent an angel to wipe out, to destroy that besieging army before they could ever do damage in Jerusalem. Well, the people in Jerusalem at that point, they were able to leave the city. They were able to seize the plunder that the army left behind. In Micah 4.11, we see that many nations are eagerly watching. They're cheering the Assyrians on. Go get them. Go wipe them out. But in verse 12, we see that those enemy nations have no idea what God is actually up to. God has lured the mighty Assyrian army to Jerusalem that they might be destroyed. How mighty is that from God? The imagery God uses in verse 13 of metal horns and hooves, that's an image of God promising his people power, strength, victory. They're going to gore and trample the Assyrians. They're going to collect the spoil. They're going to devote what they gather to the glory of Almighty God. And whether you're thinking of the Assyrian threat of 701, whether you're thinking of the Babylonian threat of 606, 597, 586 B.C., what you see here is that the hand of God is at work. The people of Jerusalem, they should have seen that they've got a king, they've got a counselor, and God's going to preserve that king and counselor no matter what. God will not let the line of David fall. God will not let the promise of a Davidic king to come fail. God will not go back on God's word, but God will, by God's power, accomplish victories that no one of Isaiah's or of Micah's day could have ever imagined on their own. Yes, the people are going to face some hard times. They're going to face some frightening times, but God will not ever fail. God will preserve his kingly promise.
Okay. Now, this is not me finishing Sunday school way early. We can see things here that give us joy just in the history, right? Let me ask you, have you already heard something that you think that's really cool and I'm glad to know it? Sure. This is primarily Micah's Day stuff. But as we get ready to wrap up, let's draw a few pieces of personal application for ourselves in our day. But just for the joy of it, let's start at the end and work our way back to the beginning. From verses 9 to 13, God promised victory to Jerusalem and the preservation of his kingly promise. Understand that those victories God promised in Micah's day, get this, they promised the preservation of the family tree of the Lord Jesus. God was not going to let Judah be utterly destroyed. Why? Because God was not going to let his plan to save a people for himself fail. The whole story of the Bible focuses us on the Savior. When mankind rebelled against God in the garden, God promised someone to come who would set things right. God later promised that the one who would come would descend from the family of Abraham through the line of King David. God preserved the family line of this promised one as he preserved a remnant of the people of the nation of Israel. So when Jesus came, Jesus proved by his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection that he, God the Son, is the one God has always been promising. Knowing that, you should do one of two things. If you don't know that you know Jesus, what you need to do is turn away from sin, put your entire trust for your entire soul in Jesus, believe in him, bow to him as your king, ask him, Lord Jesus, please forgive me, please save me. Because Jesus will save everybody who comes to him in faith and repentance. It ain't about you doing works. It ain't about you performing religious rituals. It's about salvation by God's grace through faith alone in the only one who can save your soul, which is Jesus. But if you do know Jesus, all of this should remind you of the faithfulness of God. And this should lead you to worship with joy and worship with gratitude. Backing up in the passage, God restores the broken. Oh, how good this is. If we are honest with ourselves, we know we're not that strong. We're not that mighty. We can't make it on our own. We surely cannot stand without the Lord's help. Is this not a call that you would worship in gratitude when you remember that God keeps the hurting and the limping and the imperfect. God takes our broken lives. He preserves us. He transforms us. He restores us. And when we look to the beginning of this chapter, 
There is a beautiful call for hope in the first five verses. God's kingdom will come. Didn't we pray that already this morning? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, understand this. In a sense, God's kingdom has come because Jesus Christ is king right now. But the promises of verses 1 through 5, they're bigger and more beautiful than the world we see right now, aren't they? Jesus Christ is going to draw people from all nations to himself to be saved and to be his subjects. That should make us boldly, willingly, eagerly share the gospel today because Jesus is going to save more people than are saved today and we get to be a part of the process. Jesus Christ is going to teach us. He's been teaching all. He teaches us through the word of God. He teaches us that we might live to God's glory. You've got Bible given to you by Jesus that you might learn to live to God's glory once you've been saved by grace alone. That should cause you to love the word of God. That should cause you to call other people to hear it and believe it and follow it. And there's going to come a day when Jesus reigns over our world in such a way that he brings about true, lasting, forever, unbreaking peace. And that should lead us to pray for and work for peace and justice today. And Jesus Christ will keep his followers and he will rightly judge who follow false gods. And that causes us to rest in Jesus Christ, even as we call on all people all over the world to repent and to believe that they might be saved. Guys, all these points give us hope. All these points help us to long for the day when everything sad will come untrue. They make us pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They make us work to take the gospel to the nations. Not because that earns us salvation, but because it's good. They make us work to see our world changed because God will never be defeated. And they cause us to call out in prayer as the Bible closes in prayer. Even so, Come, Lord Jesus. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, your word shows us your power, your promise, your provision. And we are surely, surely grateful. God, what we would ask you for now is that you would help us to be people who are truly faithful to you truly faithful to your word, truly grateful, truly joyful, truly obedient, truly hopeful. As we see what you promised Jerusalem and the things you will do, let us know that you're going to accomplish these things in your kingdom for your glory and let us have the joy of being part of it. God, help us to stop fretting about our weakness and rest in your provision. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.